0: Welcome back, my fellow assassins, to another episode of the Dark Assassins podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. So to start off this episode, which has, I guess, sort of becoming the what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week... Uh, segment of the podcast. Um, I decided that I would uh, revisit a project that, quite honestly, I have neglected for at probably at least a year, if not going on more than a year, two years or so. Probably not quite two years, probably at least a year, year and a half, something like that. So this uh, project was basically to keep a tally and like a running list database spreadsheet thingamajig uh, that basically compiles all of the CPUs in computers that I've either personally owned or had used in the past or currently use. Um, And this list one was very outdated. Uh, It didn't have I don't think really any of the CPUs that are found in my home lab. So that was a a big lacking area. And the other lacking area, was the fact that I pulled my CPU benchmarks from cpubenchmark.net, which I mentioned before on this podcast. Um, but the problem with that is, like any kind of benchmarking standard, you gotta keep up with the times, right? So what, what does that mean? So basically, if you have a chip that is the top of the line chip, uh, five years from now, it's not gonna be the top of the line chip. Um, And to prevent, like, runaway numbers from just exploding as far as performance numbers go, you got to figure out a way to, like, you know, normalize that and bring those numbers back down to Earth because you'll eventually get to the point, right, where you'll have this chip that scores... 15,234,552. 15,234,552. It's like, well, okay. Uh, so if you can, you know, normalize that and scale it back, it, it makes a lot more sense. So every, I don't know how often they uh, update that to scale them back, but I even noticed between my old outdated list and when I recently checked uh, when I was pulling to pull data from uh, to update the list, I noticed that you know numbers were different. and you know this was only a year year and a half apart. Uh, so to combat this, I of course, you know, just going through and manually entering all that data, no, 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 that is definitely not good enough. You know me well enough by now to know we ain't going that route. We go in the over extra route and we're writing some code. To uh, solve this problem. So specifically, uh, we're writing some Python code, which as I mentioned before, you know, kind of comparing uh, different programming languages, this is like the absolute perfect use case for Python, a quick script down and dirty does something that you needed to do can run it not have to think about it. Done deal has a lot of great, you know, plug and play libraries. uh, Fantastic. So what I did was I had to pull the data from the CPUbenchmark.net uh, for the given CPUs that I want, and then once I got that data, I got it you know, formatted the way I wanted and exported to a CSV file, and that was it. Except there's a lot more to the story than that because it wasn't that simple. <laughs> Uh, so at least to my knowledge and from the digging around that I tried to do, uh, CPUbenchmark.net does not have an API that you can use. So basically what that means is I can't, you know, query their database of all their CPUs and be like, hey, give me, the data, give me all the data you got on this CPU in a nice, easily-to-digest format that I can easily parse and you know, figure out what is in it. That's not how it worked. So because there was no API, what I had to do was I had to figure out the URL structure of how the CPUs were formatted. So when you go to cpubenchmark.net and you search for a CPU and you look at the stats, you look at the, its benchmark, and you can see you know what type of uh, class it is. Is it a server CPU, a laptop CPU, a desktop CPU? uh, what's the base clock of it, you know, does it have a turbo frequency, um, how much power does it draw, you know, all that good stuff. So, when it displays that, uh, basically I had to check the URL and cross-check against various different CPUs to see if, make sure it was consistent, number one, and two, figure out how that URL was structured so I could replicate that in my script in order to pull down that information. So once I figured that out then I was able to compile I was able to get the part that's always the same just make that a static variable and then I could create a list of all the CPUs that are that's formatted in the way that you know they have to be in order for the URL to work so I could compile a list of that in like just a text file feed that text file in and I'd be off to the races except it's, again, not that simple. <laughs> because I'm pulling from a URL and not a API, I, in addition to getting all the data I want, I also get a bunch of data that I don't want. Because when I'm pulling this down, I'm literally pulling the web page down. So I'm literally pooling all of the HTML code that makes this web page look the way it does, and pulling that down, and then I have to figure out what's the good stuff, a.k.a. what are the numbers that I care about, and what's all the junk, a.k.a. all the formatting and styling and all that stuff that I don't care about. So that was fun. Uh, not really. Uh, but thankfully, uh, because Python is cool, There was some libraries that I could just use that would pretty much for the most. I mean, I still had to do some of the parsing myself, uh, but basically did most of the parsing for me. I could just you know call a find on and look for like certain HTML tags where the data I wanted was sandwiched in between. So I was able to do that, parse the code, and get all the data that I want out of it, and then I could save that to a dictionary and export that data. Uh, to a CSV file. Um, but that's not enough. That, that's, again, too easy. That's, that's not hardcore nerdy enough. So what I did was I gave you the option to ha- be able to input whatever input file you want and whatever output file you want because customizability. But more than that, what it also does, is it allows you to be able to add your own information to each CPU. Now, what in the heck do I mean by that? So, in, the, in my use case, I wanted to know what was the computer that that CPU came from, basically the reason why I have this CPU on the list. And also, you know, other random things like what's the maximum amount of RAM that the CPU can have or what kind of RAM does it take? You know, just weird little things like that that obviously won't change. So what I did was if you if your output file has headers, a.k.a. if it has a thing on the very top row of the CSV file that says, like, origin computer, for example, rather than, like... Uh, base clock, turbo frequency, it, uh, like, you know, TDP, you know, that kind of stuff that I would get from the website. If there's anything additional, uh, basically go through that and check to see if that additional data lines up with the CPU that I'm currently on. And if so, add that to the CPU's, you know, row for the CSV file. So basically what Essentially, what it allowed me to do was add any additional data that I wanted to about the CPU in additional columns, and be, that data would be able to be saved and kept when, even when I would rerun the script to update you know, the numbers that would give me updated CPU benchmark scores. Um, so that was basically the point of that. Um, so if you're interested in checking out the script, um, I made it basically I tried to make it as user friendly as possible. I have a readme file and a requirements.txt file. Um, it's on my GitHub if you search Dark Assassin 23 on GitHub, uh you'll be able to find it there. And no, it's for whatever reason there's also a Dark Assassin 23X. I don't know who the heck, heck that is. They're an imposter. Uh but Dark Assassin 23 on GitHub, uh you'll be able to find the script there. Um, and if you want to pull it down and you know pull down your pull information for your own CPUs and start a nerdy project like I am and keeping a database of all the CPUs that your computers have, go ahead and knock yourself out. So another topic that I got a good laugh about uh, this week was I mentioned in a previous episode. Of the Darkest Assassins podcast, where I went in length ranting about how out of touch tech YouTubers and tech Twitter is with the general public. And uh, that sentiment was cemented again this week when I found a video on YouTube talking about why this tech YouTuber was not going to be upgrading to the iPhone 14 Pro from their iPhone 13 Pro and I was like, wow. (laughs) I'm not sure if you know what normal people are like, but normal people don't even have this conundrum. Normal people are like, man, I just upgraded my phone last year. I'm set for the next at least probably three or four years, if not more, with how good uh, phones are becoming these days. And really, I think for the I think I can speak for the vast majority of people on this one. The only reason uh, in this day and age that you're really upgrading your phone is either one, your phone no longer is getting software software updates, so you kind of have to upgrade if you want to, you know, make sure you're secure and you don't have the potential of being hacked. Um, and number two is your battery life just gets to the point where it's just so abysmal and terrible that you just can't use it anymore i think those are really the two main use cases where people are actually upgrading their phones nowadays now there's other fringe cases where like you see a a phone that has a really nice feature that you really really want And then you'll go for it. Like if you were going to upgrade, you know, in the next year or two anyway, and this new phone comes out with a really cool feature that you like, then you'll upgrade, which was actually the case for me. Um, I currently have the iPhone 13 Pro. I upgraded from the iPhone 10, um, which I was honestly full ready to keep the iPhone 10 and just do a battery uh, replacement on it because the battery life was honestly getting to be pretty bad, which... In fairness, it was at that point, I think it was like either a four or five-year-old phone, something like that. Um, I guess four-year-old phone. Um, And which to my credit, Apple rates their batteries, at least for for the iPhone batteries, to be at 80% of the design capacity after 500 cycles. My phone was probably either either close to if not double that 500 cycle mark and I think I was around like 85 percent battery health so in fairness to me I did a pretty good job at you know keeping the longevity of that but like aside from the battery life issue like that thing was still snappy and quick and performant and I didn't have any issues with it but the only the main reason I upgraded was I was like you know I need to do a I need to do something about this battery uh, but the iPhone 13 pro has promotion with that high refresh screen. I mean, I need to get work done on my phone and eh, I'll just upgrade, which is, is the reason why I upgraded, um, which I think is kind of, you know, in line with what most people do. Like, you know, their, their battery life's not that great. And, you know, the new one's coming out and, you know, it's got some cool features. Yeah, I'll upgrade. It's been, a, it's been a few years. Why not? But the tech YouTuber space is the reverse of that. So rather than having to have a reason to upgrade and you only upgrade every few years, every like, you know, maybe whether that's every two years because you're on a contract with your carrier, or that's every like three or four years once the battery really starts going down. Um, Or whatever the case may be, you're not upgrading all that frequently. But tech YouTubers, it's the opposite. (laughs) You have to have a reason not to upgrade because you're just always upgrading every single year. But the funny thing was, was the reasoning they gave was they're like, you know, the performance of the new iPhone isn't really going to be that much better than my current iPhone. And I don't necessarily like the design. So as much as it pains me, I'm just not going to upgrade. And I'm like, man... (laughs) Man, like you're just like the, it's just like, you know, cementing this idea that how out of touch they are, which I, I thought it was funny. And like, you know, the memes just, they, they basically just write themselves, you know, they really do. Um, so now getting into the real crux and meat of this podcast, um, unless you've been living under a rock. This past week, AKA you don't follow Dark Assassins Inc on either Facebook or LinkedIn, which you should totally do. By the way, if you don't, um, if you're one of the fancy business-minded people, you can follow on LinkedIn. Otherwise, you can follow on Facebook. Which the irony is, as much as I hate Facebook, uh, you know, Dark Assassins Inc. We gotta, we got a Facebook page, which you know it is what it is. I guess you gotta, gotta get some followers somehow, but. No Twitter, because Twitter's just stupid. Um, as I've mentioned before, I don't, I, I really don't understand the appeal of Twitter. And I don't think we could really do Twitter, since, you know, we're not, like, posting all the time, since if you follow us on either Facebook or LinkedIn, you see really the only thing we post about is updates to this podcast, <laughs> in all honesty. Uh, but... We don't. We also post about other things too, which is why I said if you haven't been living under a rock, you are aware that a new encryption algorithm has entered the chat, which uh, we broke that news on Sunday, I believe it was. Uh, a new encryption algorithm has come out called the Elite Encryption Algorithm or EEA. Uh, and what this encryption algorithm is, is it's a symmetric key encryption algorithm which takes inspiration from one-time pads, cipher block chaining, symmetric key encryption, randomness and variability to provide a new way of encrypting data. So that probably sounds like a bunch of fancy tech jargon mumbo jumbo, which... In a sense, it kind of is, but let's go through and kind of break down what that means, what this algorithm's all about, um, and is it worth switching to, is it secure, you know, all that good stuff. So some background here real quick. So I guess first to start off, symmetric key encryption, what the heck does that mean? So in the cryptography realm, there's really two main forms of encryption as far as like when it comes to keys and that's symmetric encryption and asymmetric encryption so symmetric key encryption is when you use the same key to encrypt and decrypt your data so if i encrypt this uh, set of data with the key 1234 i have to i can u- i use the same key 1234 in order to decrypt the data However, if I was using asymmetric encryption, or as it's also commonly known as public key encryption, um, that you use two keys. So you have a private key and you have a public key. So in that, in this same ex- example scenario, if I have a key, say my private key is one two three four, I can't decrypt that data with that private key. I would need to use the public key, which say maybe that's five six seven eight or you know whatever it is. Um, so that's basically the main difference, um, asymmetric encryption keys, uh, the big, probably one of the most commonly known, um, asymmetric asymmetric or public key encryption schemes is RSA. Um, and that I'm not going to get into, (laughs) get into all the details of how RSA works, but it, it essentially, uh, the keys are related to each other based on, prime numbers and, like, greatest common denominator, I think. Um, Or maybe it's least... Yeah, greatest common denominator, I believe it is. And, you know, just a bunch of fancy math, which is great because you can... um, it, It allows you to easily... Uh, de- generate keys in, for one thing to create a private key and get the public key from that and also to but hard to get the public if you have the public key to get the private key out of it so it's, it's good in that sense where um, you, it's, it's pretty secure in that sense um, and it also allows you to be able to encrypt with one and decrypt with the other Um, So basically the 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 big use case for this is like I have my private key and I give everyone my public key so and Everyone gives me their public key and they keep their private key so I can basically encrypt stuff um, With their public key and then encrypt it with my private key and send it to that person So they can know that I'm the one that sent them the message and then they can decrypt the outer layer with my public key, and then they can decrypt the inner layer with their private key, and boom, encryption. Um, the only problem with RSA in this uh, with these prime numbers and all that stuff is it's been proven that it is not quantum-resistant. And what that means is there is a quantum algorithm out there that can break the encryption of RSA. Now, you don't have to worry about that right now because quantum computing isn't at the point yet where it's viable uh, for that, and the algorithm that has been shown to be able to break RSA hasn't actually even been implemented um, with an actual quantum computer. It's just a theoretical thing at the moment. But as the quantum computing technology evolves and becomes wider use and all that stuff, RSA is going the way of DES, which DES is a another encryption algorithm, which is uh, just symmetric key. It's not uh, asymmetric. But DES was proven to not be secure and was uh, shown to be vulnerable to attacks and is uh, no longer recommended to be used. Unless you want to get... Have your encryption broken, which I don't recommend. Um, so that's uh, symmetric key encryption. Um, so the next thing that we have to get, talk about is Cipher Blockchaining. So the Elite encryption algorithm is kind of interesting because it doesn't it, it takes inspiration from Cipher Blockchaining without actually using Cipher Blockchaining. So how Cipher Blockchaining works is you have this initialization vector, which is basically just a random uh, string of numbers or whatever of a fixed length, and you use that to XOR with your first chunk of data, and then you get a result from that, and then you XOR that result with whatever your key is, and then you get a block of what we call ciphertext, and then you use that block of Cypher text as the initialization vector for the second block of what we call plain text, or the unencrypted text. Uh, XOR those together, you get a result, and then you XOR that with the key. Um, and that's basically how Cypher blockchaining works. Now, if you're wondering what the heck XOR is, XOR is just exclusive OR, which, meaning, which means it only returns true Or in the case of binary in the binary world where it operates on it returns one if and only if a or b but not both is true so if i have a is equal to zero or false and b is also equal to zero obviously neither of them are true so x or is zero if i have a equal to one and b is equal to zero obviously a is true but b is not true So XOR is true. If I have A is equal to 0 and B is equal to 1, meaning that A is false and B is true, XOR is true. So XOR is 1. But if I have, this is where XOR differs from just regular OR, because regular OR, as long as one of the values is true, it returns true. But in this case, if A is equal to 1 and B is also equal to 1, XOR is false because... One, both of them are true, and it's not exclusive. Um, So an example of this is if you take the numbers nine and five, which their binary values are one zero zero one for nine, and zero one zero one for five, and you XOR them together, you get twelve. Now, how does that work? So if we look at those number, those binary numbers, we can walk through this uh, example real quick here. So you have The first digit of nine in binary is one, and the first digit of five in binary is zero. So we have one true and one false, so it passes the exclusive or test and we have a one. And if we go to the second digit, we see we have zero for nine and one for five in binary for the next uh, digit in there. So again, that's a case where we have one one and a zero. So we have one again and then the next digit after that both of them are zero so obviously we have zero and then in the last digit we have both of them as one which we know as we went through before if you have two ones that means it's zero it's false so our final result is one one zero zero which is the binary representation for 12. so that's basically how xor works and then the last principle is one time pads so one-time pads are just completely random single-use keys uh, that have to be as long as, if not longer than, the data you're trying to encrypt. Um, and the reason one-time pads are really nice is because if they're executed correctly, they're known to be uncrackable as far as encryption is concerned. Except they get also get their, their name one-time pad because they're only meant to be a single-use key. Um, so, now that we have some of that stuff out of the way, we can kind of get into the elite encryption algorithm. So, as far as key generation is concerned, how it works is you take... A, so, like one-time pads, you take a completely random number and you take the hash of it, right? So, the, the thing with the keys... In the elite encryption algorithm unlike other encryption algorithms that uh, have have keys like say AES um, for example which is another symmetric key encryption algorithm um, that has a couple of fixed length um, lengths that the key can be but the elite encryption algorithm is different because you can have the spec is basically that there is no spec <laughs> so which is kind of where the randomness and variability comes in um, to it so the minimum spec uh, for key length is 256 bits which if you convert that to like a hexadecimal and a character representation so if you kind of represent that as 1 through 9 and then a through f you get 16 or not 16, 64, excuse me, as the minimum for 256 bits. And then you could also have 512 bits or or 1024 bits or any other uh, number that is any other multiple of 512 bits. And the reason is because how the key generation works is like I mentioned, you create random numbers So if I wanted a key length of, say, the minimum, which is 256 bits long, the reason why that's the minimum is because once you generate the random number, it's run through the SHA-256 hash algorithm, which, not to go into how that works because that's beyond the spec of this breakdown, but uh, the SHA-256 algorithm as the kind of name implies 256, it returns a 256-bit number, essentially, which is a hexadecimal value, which I mentioned is that 0 through 9 and A through F, which hexadecimal, if you're not familiar, is just another way of representing numbers. So instead of having 1 through 9, and then you go to the tens place, you have 1 through F. So, and then you, which then you go to like the 16s place because it's base 16. Um, so yeah, so you get that, that's where that comes from. And then if you want something bigger than 256 bits for your key length, like say you want a 512 or a 2048 or like a 4096 or some other multiple greater than 256, that's a multiple of 512. Then you take the SHA 256. 25- Sha 512 hash algorithm, excuse me, and you hash the random put the random number through that hash hash function. Um, and then in cases where you say have uh, a key length that you want um, 1024 bits long, what you would do is you would create two random numbers, uh, run the first random number through the hash the Sha 512 hash function, and then you would run the second random number through the SHA-512 hash function, and you'd basically conjoin them together to get one long key. And you basically just compound this until you get to whatever your desired key length is. Um, and that's how the key generation works. And the thing that's just interesting about this is the fact that it's completely—it's there's no standard, right? So if I'm an attacker. Trying to crack this encryption and I have this encrypted data I have absolutely no idea how long my key has to be. I have zero clue I don't know if the key that was used to generate. This was 256 bits long. I don't know if it was 8192 bits long. I don't know if it was 2048 bits long. I have no idea how long this key was But that's not it, because in addition to having this variable key length, there's also no standard for the number of keys you can have. So you could have one key, you could have three keys, you could have five keys, you could be an absolute madman and have like a 100 keys or more. There is zero standard for how many keys you could have, which in a sense is kind kind of mind blowing because the the algorithm works whether you have one key that's 256 bits long or you have 50 keys that are all 8192 bits long and it still works all the same which is kind of crazy that it's able to do this um so from for which is like i mentioned uh when we covered in the very beginning where this randomness and variability comes in because you have no idea <laughs> How, one, how many keys were used, and two, how long those keys were. So trying to break that and figure out what the key, or in this case, keys were, I mean, good luck with that, trying to figure that out. And what's more is because you can have so many keys, so hypothetically, let's say you had like 10 keys, right? and they were all 512 bits long. If an attacker, as we'll kind of get into once we go through how the encryption works, if the attacker were to get even all of your keys but didn't know the order that they were used in, they honestly might just give up because (laughs) they'd have to make sure the order was exactly right in order to break the encryption. Which, unless they can get your key file to know that the keys are correct, The odds, especially if you have, say, like, you know, 20 or 30 keys, because, or even less than that, like, you know, three, four, five keys, with all the random number generating that's going on to make these keys, even if one of the keys is right, the odds that they're even going to be able to, one, get all of them right, and two, even get them in the correct order, because order matters when it comes to the keys, I mean, it's just virtually zero, at least for my you know, understanding of how this algorithm works. So speaking of how this algorithm works, as we mentioned with how Cypher blockchaining works, this algorithm is similar but also different. So there is no initialization vector, but there's also no in, like encryption with the key every single time. So how it works is you split the, uh, the plain text or your encrypted data uh, into blocks that are the size of the key length which is why this algorithm works with any key length essentially that's within the 512 that's a mul- that's either 256 bits long or some multiple of 512 because of the sha fi- sha 256 and 512 hash functions so as long as it's you know falls into that spec um, the the block size can be any length essentially which yeah it can be any length and the algorithm works all the same so how it works is you take your first key and you take your first block of unencrypted data which is the same size as the key which in cases where say your first block say your entire unencrypted data isn't as big as the key The algorithm just adds padding to it, so it makes it the same length of the key. So you always have at least one block. Um, So what you do is you take your first block and you do an XOR with the key and you get a block of ciphertext. So then what you do is you take that block of ciphertext and you XOR it with the next block of plain text. And you keep repeating this process until you get to the end. And that doesn't sound all that hard, complicated, or whatever, but then it builds on that. So then we go to the second key, and we repeat that process. So we take the first block of text, which is now encrypted. So we take that first block, which was originally the first block of ciphertext, and we encrypt, we XOR that with the second key. And then we take that second block, that first block, which has now been encrypted with two different keys, and we XOR that with the second block of text uh, of data that was only encrypted with the first key, and we again repeat the process. And you do that for every single key that you have. So this process could be run once. It could be run five times, ten times, fifty times, however many keys you have. It runs all those runs through this uh, algorithm as many times as you have keys. Which is why I mentioned, even if you did manage to get the correct key, even well, first off, if you only got one, it doesn't matter because theoretically, you'd probably be having multiple keys because how this algorithm is structured, Uh, you'd probably want to have more than one key. just because you can <laughs> and obviously the more keys you have the, the more the le- less likely it'll be that someone will be able to unencrypt and break your data without actually getting your key but it also if someone did get one of your keys just through random chance one it wouldn't do anything because they wouldn't have the rest of them and two they would need to make sure it was in the correct order of keys which again they would have no idea where it was supposed to be so the reverse of that to decrypt the data is just, you know, like I said, the reverse. So the algorithm first has to figure out if your data is long enough. And as you, this is actually pretty trivial um, if you think about it, because what you can do is you know how long your keys are. So if your data you're trying to decrypt is the same length as the, the length of your key, you know that you only have to XOR with the key as many... So yeah and you just have to XOR with the key and you're good so if i have say five keys rather than starting with the first key i would obviously start with the fifth key and then go back to the fourth and then the third and the second and then you know the first one and go in reverse but if you have if your uh encrypted data is longer than the key length then you know that Uh, that scheme of taking the encrypted text that you just encrypted and XORing it with the unencrypted text or whatever happened. So what you can do is you take the second to last block and encrypt it with the last block or XOR with the last block. And then you take the third to last block and you XOR with the second to last block and then you work your way backwards until you get to the last block which in this case is really the first block because we're going in reverse and XOR that with the key and then you go back to the end and do that process again and again and again and again until you get through all your keys and then your data is decrypted so the thing that is so cool in my opinion about this algorithm is like i mentioned how it can have so little spec when it comes to uh like the size of your key and how many keys and it still works without issue like if you like for example if if i tried to do aes with an unsupported key length it wouldn't work it would break you're done, you're toast. But this, it doesn't matter. As long as I have a key length that is at least 256 bits, or some multiple of 512, I'm good. So I could have a key that's, you know, insanely huge, and it would still work. And I could have a ton of keys and it would still work. Now, obviously, if you have a ton of keys and your keys are all massive, it's probably going to take a lot longer to run through the algorithm because how many iterations you have to do. Uh, Specifically, if you have a ton of keys, it's going to take a while (laughs) uh, because it's going to have to go through all those, especially if you're, you know, encrypting massive files. But, you know, again, that could be, you know, a trade-off that you take for more security having uh, you know the ability to have more keys in that sense. Um, so, kind of, I guess, wrapping things up here. Um, should you drop everything, every encryption scheme, RSA, AES, all of those, triple DES, and use the elite encryption algorithm? Well, basically, the short answer is no, um, and it's not for the reason that you might expect. Because I've been kind of talking this this whole section of the podcast. About how great this is and all this randomness and variability and like how mind-blowing it is and how great it is but the reason why I say that you shouldn't is because it's not certified as of the recording of this podcast that is uh, by the National Institute of Standards and Technology like other encryption schemes like RSA and AES uh, so basically what this means is because those algorithms and implementations are certified by NIST, uh, you know that unless an attacker gets your keys, your data can't be decrypted and your data is secure. The thing, because the elite encryption algorithm currently isn't certified by NIST, it is currently, uh, it hasn't been conclusively demonstrated and therefore certified That once your data has been encrypted, it's truly secure and unable to be decrypted and cracked unless uh, the attacker has your keys. Um, So while I definitely think it's cool, I I wouldn't necessarily tell everyone that is super that needs to make sure that all their data can never be decrypted. Uh, by anyone sh- maliciously trying to decrypt their data to switch to this m- solely for that purpose. Like, if someone just wanted, like, you know, an encryption thing to, like, encrypt their data and they didn't necessarily care as much, then, yeah, sure, use it. It's awesome. It's great. Um, but if, you, if you're, if you like, you know, say uh, you're dealing with really sensitive information, like you're uh, a company dealing with, like, proprietary data that can't be you know fallen into the wrong hands or you're a, a government entity dealing with like classified information or whatever then obviously you're going to want to be using a, a a spec or an encryption algorithm that has been uh, approved and certified by NIST because you know that your data is secure i mean personally if you had if you held a gun to my head and you said is this secure will my information ever be uh you know able to be detect able to be decrypted without the the keys i would personally say no just because my understanding of how this algorithm works and all that variability randomness and all the cybersecurity principles and cryptography principles that have kind of come in to make this algorithm personally i think you're probably fine and your data is going to be secure but again because it's not certified uh by nist you can't you know definitively say that without a shadow of a doubt because they're basically the overarching encompassing authority on this stuff but personally you know i think it's it's a great algorithm uh, in my opinion um so take that for what it's worth um if you're interested um on our Facebook and LinkedIn page we have a uh, link to a, a the blog post about it which kind of goes in detail like breaking it down um, and kind of going into you know how it works if you're if you're interested in that. So if you enjoyed this episode learning about the nerdy stuff that I did this week, Uh, And learning about the new Elite Encryption Algorithm, I'd ask that you leave a rating and review and subscribe to the Dark Assassins podcast if you haven't done so already. Uh, Also, be sure to share with a friend or family member who you think might be interested in learning about my nerdy adventures this week and uh, the Elite Encryption Algorithm. Um, And if you have any questions uh, about this episode or you have a question that you want me to answer in a future episode, uh, you can leave that in a rating or review. Um, or you can shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. The link for that is in the show notes below. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins Podcast.